is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. I'm so excited today on the podcast. I have an amazing running coach. I've been on his newsletter for a really long time. I'm so excited to have him. Jason Fitzgerald, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me today, Jacqueline. Yeah, it's so cool. So I'm just looking at all of your running gear in the background. So I'm so honored to have you. And I just love getting started and kind of hearing about how my guests found running, um, what it was like for them early on. So have you always been a runner? When did it start? So I started running by accident and I didn't always love running. So I probably have a, a similar story to a lot of other runners out there who, who maybe found the sport by accident. Um, I started running as a freshman in high school and I really just wanted to do a fall sport. I almost went out for the golf team but thank God I didn't do that. That would have been a little bit more boring. And instead, you know, my mother told me, why don't you try cross country? It's like track. And so in my head, I was thinking, oh, I can go there and high jump. Because <laughs> in middle school, I, I found the high jump in gym class just to be kind of fun. So I thought, oh, I'll go high jump. I'll jump around. It'll be pretty fun. I show up and very quickly you learn that there are no field events in cross country. You are just running and you're running a lot. And I remember that first run almost like it was yesterday. It was a three-mile run. It was a loop from our school's field house, and I couldn't finish it. I, I was walking. It was, it was a hot day. It was the beginning of cross-country, I think the very beginning of September. And it was miserable. It, now that I look back on it, I wonder how I ever stuck with the sport because I had such a poor first experience with, with running. But, you know, I ended up sticking with it because the coach seemed really nice and the guys on the team were fun. And I think like a lot of runners, once I started uh, seeing some progress, once I started running some races and my training started picking up a little bit, I very quickly got addicted to that progress. And I loved just seeing, oh, this week I, I ran five seconds faster than I did two weeks ago. And, and that progression, that improvement really got me hooked on the sport. And so, you know, I made the really tough decision after cross country season to uh, abandon my first love of basketball. Um, I, you know, all my friends just kept growing after eighth grade and, and I'm still here at age 35 at five foot seven. So, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I, I had to, uh, you know, really think critically about what kind of sport I was going to play and it ended up being running. And so I started indoor track. I ran outdoor track. And I actually ran three seasons, all four years of high school. Then I went to college at Connecticut College in New London, and I ran four seasons there. I'm sorry, three seasons for all four years. Oh my and it's just it's such an amazing experience being a runner because it's such a transformational sport that you can look back on yourself a year ago, two years ago, or five years ago, and you can see an entirely different person. So the things that I was able to do in high school were almost like a joke to me in college. And so I was able to do so much more as a runner, as an athlete, and, and that only grew from there. And so now what I try to do is I try to help runners realize that, you know, they can achieve similar progress in their running. You know, they don't have to constantly be running the same times or training the same way. And, and we can really take the next step with their training and help them get to the next level, whatever that level might be for them. So I, I kind of got started in, in a weird way and I almost didn't continue with it. 
Um, but I'm so glad that I did because running is just one of those sports that is so incredibly rewarding. Uh, you know, my best man at my wedding was my high school cross country co-captain. Uh, I married uh, a girl from my college's cross country team that I just, uh, you know, couldn't stay away from. <laughs> so running has given me so much in life. And uh, I think trying out for that cross country team might have just been one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I love how you said that it was really like the coach that when you were in school, that kind of like brought that love. I'm a former teacher. And I remember in college, them asking you like, who was the teacher in your life who affected your life? Like, that's probably why you want to be a teacher. You saw that. And I know a lot of my listeners, sometimes I talk to people or clients or on Instagram, they'll be like, oh, you know, I hated running from the mile test. Like the, the one mile test in elementary school um, really put a bad <laughs> taste of running in a lot of people's mouths. And then as adulthood uh, came on, they're like, oh, let me try this out again. So what kinds of things, when you go back to that coaching that you had in high school, like how did that change your relationship with running? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and, and you're right. You know, now that I look back on it, I remember running the mile in gym class in middle school and it was awful. It was terrible. Nobody wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. We didn't even run it on a track. So who knows if it was actually a mile. And that was probably why during track and field week, I skipped all of the running events. And I was like the hundred pound eighth grader throwing the shot put and trying to high jump instead. <laughs> but um, no, you're, you're definitely right that, you know, the, the first coach that I ever had, Jeff Glue, was a really, he was just a great guy. And, and what he did, I think that was really uh, impactful for me and for everyone else on the team was that he didn't over coach us. He wasn't there telling us exactly where to run or exactly what pace to run. He let us figure a lot of that out by ourselves. You know, he kind of said, you know, run 45 minutes at an easy effort. And that was it. And, and that actually gave us a lot of autonomy. It gave us a lot of independence. And, and maybe even more important than that, he was the kind of coach that you didn't want to disappoint. You know, it's almost like when your parents tell you that they're disappointed in you, how that's worse than if they're mad at you. And so he was definitely that kind of guy. And, and I remember me and the other, uh, the other guys on the team, we wanted to have a good season in part for the coach. And, and I think that is, that is a way of coaching that uh, really helps you connect with your athletes in a deeper way because they're not just doing what you tell them to do. They're doing it because they know it's the right thing and they want to do the right thing and hopefully, you know, get the best out of themselves too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that relation building is relationship building is huge. And I love that. So, so you went to college, um, was your degree in exercise science? Or how did you like, how did you transition over to coaching? Yourself. No, I, I double majored in a government with a focus on American government. And <laughs> I also majored in an in interdisciplinary major offered by the sociology department called urban studies. So kind of a sociology degree with a focus on urban environments, which as you can tell, has absolutely no impact on my current job as a running coach. <laughs> but, you know, I was always very much interested in the, the training theories and the exercise science that influence your running and your training and why you're doing the workouts that you're doing and all the little decisions that you make about 
uh, your training. And so, you know, I was kind of the annoying runner in college that was always asking the coach, you know, why are we doing this workout? Why are we doing this workout now as opposed to maybe two weeks ago or one week from now? You know, so as I was asking those questions, trying to understand why is the workout structured this way? What are we gaining from this workout? Why are we doing it at this time? And, you know, I, I kind of got obsessed with that side of running and I started buying all kinds of running books and, and learning more about the, the, the training side of things and um, really the exercise science behind the workouts. You know, what is happening with our biomechanics? What is happening inside our bodies as we're doing some of these workouts that really help us adjust and adapt to that new higher workload and that then allows us to race even faster. And so, you know, I'm, I was very much self-taught in that regard. And then, you know, a long time ago, I went and I got my USA track and field coaching certification, which really formalized a lot of what I had known, kind of put some, uh, you know, formal names on things. But, you know, to be honest with you, I, I honestly didn't really learn too much from, uh, from the, the level one coaching course, because I think you can, you can be uh, really good at what you do as a coach if you have some experience in the organized version of the sport. So with cross country or track, and, and then you're just self-taught. So you read a lot of running books and I'm sure you can look behind me and just see bookshelves of running books that, uh, you know, I just, I just love. So for me, it was always an interest in the training side of things and it grew and grew from there post-collegially. Mm -hmm. So after college, um, is that when you started uh, coaching right away or did you explore other careers and how did it go? Yeah. So after college, no, I didn't know that I really wanted to be a coach for years after I graduated college. Um, you know, I kind of got a little boring accounting job after, <laughs> after college. It was uh, 2006 and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, but it was interesting because the job was at Wayfair, which is a really big e-commerce company. They used to be called CSN Stores. And went back when I worked for them at CSN stores, they owned like 200 different websites. It wasn't just Wayfair.com. Uh, I think I just it, listened to podcasts about them. Yeah. Yeah. They were running sites like everydinnerplate.com and luggage.com. And they were very much targeted to different, different niche, niches. And, uh, you know, that was interesting to me, but it uh, you know, just, just kind of like the way that that company got started. I mean, this is like a multi-billion dollar company that the two founders started in, the, in their living room. So while my actual job was pretty boring and nobody wants to hear about it, it kind of got me started thinking about doing something online, something virtual uh, that would allow me to reach more people. And, you know, uh, I think about a year later after I got the job, uh, I bought the domain name strengthrunning.com because it sounded pretty cool. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but that is a cool domain name and I'm going to buy it. And I didn't do anything with it for years. Uh, in 2009, I did put up a static website. It wasn't a blog. It didn't have anything that really changed on it. And, you know, I was under the illusion that if you build it, they will come. And that website just kind of sat there for a year. I don't think I got a single email from someone who was interested in coaching. And I finally realized in 2010 that I needed to kind of demonstrate that I knew what I was talking about. So I started a blog and the blog started in, I believe, April of 2010 and has grown really significantly since then. And uh, the blog was really something that enabled me to uh, reach more runners, but also 
uh, also just share what I learned about running from my perspective, from my own running career. Because really the, the impetus for starting strength running was after my first marathon, the New York City Marathon, I got an IT band syndrome for like six months and I didn't run. I was sitting on the couch, you know, mostly watching reruns of House, feeling sorry for myself. And finally, I got up, I said, you know, I got to do the thing that I love. I need to go running. And I finally went to a bunch of physical therapists. And after seeing about four of them and doing a lot of different research on my own about how to treat this injury, I finally got healthy. And I realized that if I wanted to stay healthy, because I've always been a fairly injury prone runner, then I needed to completely change how I approached my training. And so that almost epiphany was what was what really led me to start the strength running blog. And we've been off to the races since then. Yes, I'm kind of in a similar spot seeing a physical therapist right now <laughs> for my knee and doing all of the exercises I should have been doing the whole time. But it was like, no, you know, I sp you spend so much time on running that you're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to spend time on strength training. But it's like, well, <laughs> your body needs that strength. So what kinds of things did you start exploring? Like, what are the best things for injury prevention, um, taking care of your body? Uh, one of the, the most helpful, and this is kind of a little uh, uh, way of remembering this strategy, is what I call, um, you know, the run sandwich. Let's sandwich all of your runs. And this is a really great way of, of not just making sure that, uh, you know, you're getting stronger and that you're prioritizing injury prevention, but it's going to make you feel better and it's going to make you run faster and it's going to make you a stronger athlete. It's going to improve your coordination, your balance, your proprioception. So this, this to me is a strategy that I think every runner should be doing. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, we can look at elite runners and see that they're doing the same thing and we can take some of those lessons and apply them to, to any runner, no matter if you're a, you know, 50 year old runner who just started or you're 15 running in high school. And so the run sandwich is simply that the run is, the real meat of the sandwich. And the two pieces of bread are a dynamic warm-up that you do before you start running. And then after your run, you finish that up with a runner-specific core or strength workout. Now, these don't have to take too long. The, the uh, dynamic warm-up should be roughly 10 minutes. The post-run routine could be 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, I have a routine called the standard core routine, where if you build up to three sets and you kind of do everything, it's like, about 25 minutes, but that's, that's the, that's the high end for our time commitment here. And, and really what this does is it, it, first of all, the dynamic warm up helps prepare you for the run. So it's going to do everything a good warm up should do. It's going to elevate your core body temp temperature, increase your heart rate, improve, uh, you know, capillary flow in your extremities, lubricate your joints and really metabolically prime you for running. So I think anyone any runner has probably experienced that time where, you know, they're sitting down for hours and they're like, oh, I'm going to go for a run. And they get up and they just get changed and they go outside and they feel really bad because their body has been sitting down for hours. It's been inactive and it's just not primed for running. And so what the dynamic warm-up does is it primes your body for running. And I think it's really beneficial for, um, you know, folks who sit down at an office job or something similar for most of the day and they run after work. So this dynamic warm-up is really gonna wake you up and improve your range of motion so that running is not just easier, but less of an injury risk. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, you finish your run, you do whatever workout you have planned for the day, uh, you can follow that up with a core or strength routine. 
And like I said, it can be as short as 10 minutes. You can go in the gym and do an hour long, you know, lifting workout. And so we can really do a lot of different things with this post run routine. But I think the, the major principles to remember are, um, let's do something after most of our runs. And in fact, I might say all of our runs that can be as, as little as, you know, a, an eight minute mobility routine. Or it could be, you know, a 25-minute core workout. It could be a 60-minute gym workout. We're actually getting in the gym to lift some weights and, you know, doing squats and deadlifts and some of the really fundamental exercises that are important for runners. But, you know, this kind of uh, an approach to your run, you know, it, it really makes it clear that runners should not just be running. And in fact, I actually tell runners, I don't even want you to call yourself a runner you're not a runner. And most runners are like freaking out. They're like, what am I then? And I say, you are an athlete that specializes in running. So that then reframes our training, doesn't it? We're not just going to be running. And it's the same way as if, you know, you look at uh, an NBA player or an NFL player or a major league soccer player, really any athlete, a tennis player, Serena Williams, do you think they are only playing tennis or basketball? Of course not. They're doing all kinds of conditioning work, all kinds of warming up and dynamic stretches, and they're getting in the gym to do weightlifting. They are athletes that specialize in their respective sports. And we need to think the same way about our own training if we want to not only stay healthy, but achieve whatever performance goals that we have. I love that. That's so interesting because when you do start a race, they are always like athletes. They call you athletes over and over like at the starting line. And I think I've always been like, I'm not an athlete. Like <laughs> I'm not in college. I'm not in high school on a team, but like putting on that persona. Okay, cool. If you're an athlete, what are the things that athletes would do? You kind of like rise up and do Totally. Yeah. It completely reframes how you think about yourself. And really, I mean, look, you're participating in a sport. You are absolutely an athlete. It doesn't matter if you're a five-hour marathoner, if you just finished the local 5K in 35 minutes, you're still an athlete. And doing something like a dynamic warm-up or, you know, a 15-minute strength routine after your runs, that doesn't take away from your running at all. It actually supplements it, complements it, and it makes you into a better runner. So for me, it's a no-brainer. These kind of things are, they're going to make you, they're going to make you a better runner. They're going to make you less injury prone. And they're just going to make you feel better when you're out there running because, you know, you're, you're actually getting warmed up to go running. So you're going to feel better. You'll perform better. To me, it's, it's an absolute no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So have you seen things that you've learned from running kind of transfer over to other parts of your life, like confidence or like the hard things that you had to overcome um, into real life? Absolutely. I mean, a great example is strength running itself. You know, mm -hmm. I started strength running, like I said, in 2009. It was a complete disaster and a failure, <laughs> but you don't give up just like you don't give up if you have a bad race. And so I knew I had to make some changes with strength running in 2010. And, you know, part of it was just patience. I think distance running is such a good education in patience because it's such a long-term sport. You're not going to, you, you start running tomorrow, you're not going to have any kind of success in a week or a month or maybe even six months. Mm. It is a long-term sport. You know, there's a great quote by a coach I really admire, Greg McMillan, and he has this sub-elite group of runners. And he says, you need to come to me and give me two to three years, two to three years of hard work. And then we will be able to glimpse your potential. Now, mind you, this is two to three years post-collegiately. So this is, these are runners that have been training in college, often in very uh, challenging, difficult Division I programs. 
and then also tra uh, training at the high school level as well. So it's not two to three years, it's really 10 to 11 years. And, and that's the kind of timeframes that we're working on as runners. You know, I think everyone wants to, you know, uh, run their first marathon. This is such a common running goal or qualify for Boston or break a certain time barrier like the four hour mark or the three hour mark. Those kind of goals are like five to 10 year goals. Yeah. If you're starting to run, that's it's eight years in the future. Let's just be patient. And I think running is, is a really good education in patience. Um, I think I think that's probably the number one lesson that running has taught me is just is just stay patient through uh, through the good times and through the bad times. You know that that's another thing that running is probably a good educator on is the fact that you're going to have some bad times and you're going to have discomfort. You're going to suffer a little bit. You're going to have days where you don't want to run at all and you're going to have to get out there and do it anyway. And you know that's a really good. Um, metaphor for life, isn't it? We all have things that we don't want to do. We all have, you know, things that we have to endure and, and almost suffer through a little bit. But, you know, running is something that really helped me uh, emotionally grapple with some of the complexities of life. So, you know, hard times, you can stay patient and stay just consistent with what you know is, is helpful for you. And hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll reemerge on the other side unscathed and, and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, doing well. But, you know, without running, it's, it's really hard. You know, I see a lot of people who are unable to commit to something for the long term. And so, you know, I had friends asking me, you know, you're writing this little running blog uh, at the very beginning. And, you know, I was five months in and I was having a blast with it. And they're like, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, well, I'm not really sure. I'd like to turn it into a business at some point, but I didn't know. And I was okay going along with it, not really having a formal plan in place. I didn't know, you know, where strength running was going to be in 2012 or 2015 or 2018, way back when I first started. Just like you have no idea what you're going to be doing as a runner when you, when you first get started. You know, you might be happy running three miles a couple times a week, occasionally doing that first you know, 5k that, you know, your, your local club puts on. But five years from now, you might be doing ultra marathons out in the mountains of Colorado with me. Who knows? So there's all kinds of, uh, you know, different ways that your running career can take you. And I think running is a great way to learn patience and uh, being steadfast through adversity and also just a little bit of, of being comfortable with the, the uncomfortable reality of an unpredictable life. Those are huge. I love that. It, it's so true. So I started running about five years ago and it's like, yeah. I think that when you start, you're like, I want to hit this mile time. I want to hit this pace. I want to get this. And then everyone will say like, like, first of all, like your first race, like just run it, like not have a goal, just get it done. And then that like thinking long-term is really hard when, because no, I want it now. I want, I want the medal now. I want the gold star now. So that's so helpful to see, even just like thinking about your website, like that started over 10 years ago and how it has flourished. It's really cool. So what does running look like for you right now? Are you doing ultra marathons? Is that what you said? <laughs> well, no, not right now, but <laughs> hey, you never know where I'll be in a couple yeah. of years. Uh, no, I, I actually attempted an ultra marathon in 2015. I had to drop out of that at about the 18 mile mark with uh, a knee injury. Um, probably not the best idea to choose your first ultra marathon 
in the Colorado mountains at high altitude with almost 8,000 feet of elevation gain and loss. Yeah, Probably not the best idea. Awesome. Even for an experienced runner, it was some of the most brutal terrain that I've ever run. And so you're, you know, I, I've run a 239 marathon and I was running 10, 11, 12 minute pace out there and it just wrecked me. And it, so it's very challenging. Um, for me right now, you know, strength running is bigger and more complex than it was a while back. So that does take up a lot of my time. And I'm also, uh, you know, I, I married my, my running sweetheart from college and we have three kids now. So uh, I'm pretty busy and I'm not training the 80 to 90 miles a week like I was in, you know, uh, college and, mm -hmm. and in the years post-collegiately because I simply can't. But you know, I'm still running races. I'm still training. I'm still doing all the, you know, the little things that, that I know really are great for your training. I'm just doing it in a little bit more scaled back fashion. And hopefully when my kids are a little bit older, I'll have some uh, extra time where I can put in, put in more, uh, more work. But, you know, I'm running a, a 12 mile trail race out in here in Colorado, uh, in just a couple of weeks. So I'll be out there. I'm still racing. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's just helpful to see that too, that like it, like running can weave in and out of your life and it's not always going to be the number one priority and that that's okay. Um, have you ever dealt with burnout from it and just like not wanting to go run feeling like, Oh, I can't. I don't yeah. Do this. yeah. Actually in 2007, I moved into a house with five of my college friends and I was dealing with a back injury. I kind of forget how I got it at this point. I don't think it was running related. Um, but I decided to take some time off of running and, you know, this was a year after I graduated college. Um, I had just run, I had just had a, a really great year of racing. I had just run a PR in the mile, the 10 mile. I had raced my first half marathon, uh, my first 10 K cross country race. I had a great year, but it was a little bit of, uh, a situation where I was just tired. I was so tired. I had spent most of the year getting up at five in the morning to run my, you know, 80, 85 miles a week before I had over an hour commute into Boston for my job at the time. And so it was very challenging. And I took about six weeks off and I was like, I'm done. I, I don't want to run anymore. I want to hang out with my friends and have a good time. And so it was a very unhealthy six weeks of partying and not doing much running and just going out and having an awesome time. It's fun for a little while, but you just start to miss the fulfillment of running. And so while I was having a lot of fun, I wasn't experiencing a lot of joy. And I think that's a really important distinction of, you know, things that you do that are difficult and sometimes you don't want to do, but give you a lot of satisfaction, like running. So no, we don't always want to go out when it's raining or something like that. But at the end of the day, it really gives me a lot of happiness. And so, um, yeah, I took that time off and I gained about 16 pounds. I was trying to gain a lot of weight. It's really hard for me to do that. And uh, coming back after gaining about 16 pounds and not running for six weeks was, was pretty hard. It was really hard. And, uh, you know, besides my, my long injury after my first marathon, that was at the time, the longest period of time I'd ever taken off from running in one period since I started. And I realized that it's not so hard to maintain your fitness, but it's really hard to build it back up again. So I want to do everything I can to stay healthy and not, uh, not take off these extended periods because it's, it's brutal coming back from, from a period of time off like that. Yeah, that's so true. So if someone's getting started with running and maybe, or maybe they have had a period of time. I think that that's a big thing too. Like 
running a 5k for like the turkey trot and then not running all winter because it's cold and it's snowy. I'm in the, in the Midwest, I'm in Chicago. And so there's a lot of snow outside. So getting started again, what tips do you have for someone that as it's starting to get warmer and they're like, okay, cool. I want to give this another shot. First tip is try not to take the winter off in the first place because it's going to make it so much easier to start running again in the spring. Uh, but if you do take the winter off if, or, or, you know, any period of time off and you're, you haven't been running, one of the best things that you can do is, number one, implement that sandwiching technique that we talked about because this is going to help build some strength and resilience in your body so that when you do start running a little bit more, your injury risk is going to be a lot lower. Because what happens is, you know, you're going to start running and, you know, your legs might feel sore for a week, um, but then they're not going to be that sore and you're going to feel like you're getting in much better shape. But your aerobic fitness, you know, your endurance, your heart and lungs, they get fitter much faster than all your connective tissues, your bones, ligaments, tendons, you know, all that stuff that really helps support your running. That doesn't get fit, you know, I'll put that in air quotes, that doesn't develop as quickly as your aerobic system. So what happens is you, you're capable of running really fast or really long, but your body isn't necessarily ready for it. So this is really true for, for runners after a period of time off where, you know, their legs have been so deconditioned and then their aerobic fitness gets this big boost in fitness. And next thing you know, they get hurt because, you know, oh, I can handle 25 miles a week now. I can handle 30 miles a week with a 10 mile long run. Uh, but, you know, they just took four months off and they're not ready to jump back into that just yet. So um, not only doing, doing your strength work, but let's be really careful with mileage increases. I think everyone's heard of the 10% rule. Uh, I have a more nuanced take on the 10% rule. I think it's wildly incomplete. Um, you know, if you're a runner and you're comfortable running, let's just say 15 to 20 miles a week. If you're coming back from, you know, maybe a week or two off, uh, you know, not, not an entire winter, but you can be way more aggressive than 10% per week, building up to that comfortable mileage level. But once you're beyond that 15 to 20 mile week range, and now you're in an almost an uncomfortable mileage territory. Now you're running mileage that is challenging for you. You're more tired and fatigued. At this point, let's be more conservative than 10%. Let's actually build your mileage a little bit more slowly and carefully, and, and maybe not even increase it every single week. You know, that, that's, I think that's one of the flaws of the 10% rule is that it's 10% per week every week, week after week after week. And as soon as you start running 30, 40 miles a week, those increases get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they just compound on one another. And very soon, you know, you, you give yourself two or three months, you're running mileage that you're simply not ready for. So the 10% rule, I think, is, uh, is incomplete. We should be a little bit more conservative in, at mileage levels that are new to us, but we can be a little bit more aggressive with mileage levels that are easy for us. Um, so I think those are probably the two best pieces of advice I have for people who are coming back from a period of time off is, is go slow with the mileage increases, uh, go slow with your running too, you know, that you don't, don't try to do workouts your first or second week back, you know, let's just keep it easy and, and develop that consistent habit of running first. Let's do that first, then we can layer in the complexity later. And then of course, couple it with the strength training so that you're not putting yourself at a huge risk for injury. Mm -hmm. I love that 
uh, I think that that like the thinking longevity kind of going back to like, cool, five years out, not like five weeks, like taking care of your body in that way. Um, what's your stance on like signing up for a race? How does someone know that they're ready? Are you someone that's like sign up for a race and then figure out the training or start with training, get comfortable, sign up for a race? What are your thoughts on that? You could do a little bit of both. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a one school of thought that says, you know, let's, let's sign up for races once we're confident that we'll do well at them, you know, and I think you'll find a lot of competitive runners in this category where, you know, they're like, you know, I'm getting in a good shape. I'm not sure what I want to do this spring or fall, but you know, let's see where the training takes me. And then there's another school of thought where it's like, well, I'm never going to do the training if I don't have something on the schedule. So let's sign up for a race. And, you know, then that'll almost make me put in the work. Um, you know, I think either option is completely fine for runners, as long as they're not biting off more than they can chew. So as long as you're not, you know, signing up for a marathon in 12 weeks, when your current long run is only averaging about six miles, you know, then, then you don't even have time to figure out the training. The race is just too soon. So I think as long as the race is something that you can physically do, then sign up for it, then sign up for it. And, you know, then let's work backwards. Uh, I think one of the things that I've been trying to be more clear about and really drill into, um, you know, with, with adult recreational runners is that let's build seasons into your year. Just like if you were in college running track and cross country, you know, let's build seasons into your year so that we can put the proper structure around your training. Because that's the number one mistake I see among most adult runners is that there's no structure. There's no progression of workouts and mileage and long runs. And so it's all a little bit random, a little bit sporadic. Uh, it doesn't build on itself and running is cumulative. You know, what you do today impacts what you're capable of doing next week and next month. And so, you know, if we can be more strategic with building our mileage and proper progressions of long runs and workouts, et cetera, we're going to be so much uh, more capable as athletes who specialize in running. <laughs> athletes who specialize in running. I love that. So, okay, so let's pretend we've done the training, we're showing up to race day. Um, I think that I get a lot of messages like, oh, I'm so nervous about race day. My body, you know, like I'm nervous that people are going to be smaller than me, faster than me. I'm going to be like sticking out like a sore thumb. Um, and we talk a lot about mindset, like your mind can play those tricks on you. So what are your tips for like getting yourself, your head in the game, ready for race, ready for race day? Oh man, this could be, this could be the whole podcast right here. Yeah. I think the first thing to understand is that every runner is thinking the same things. You know, I just had a conversation with Dina Castor, who's arguably one of the most uh, dominant female runners in the country for the last couple decades. And she just wrote a, wrote a book all about psychological struggles and her mindset about the, about running. And God, you read it and you're like, she thinks about running in, in similar ways as someone who's only been running for a couple of weeks. You have the same fear lining up on the starting line. You have the same butterflies in your stomach, the same worries, you know, the same anxieties about who might beat you, who's going to be faster, who's going to, you know, judge you for what you're wearing, or is that person really a runner? They shouldn't be here. Um, but it's universal. That fear and pre-race anxiety is universal. And it, I think it's one of the things that makes running so unique and special. And I've been talking to a lot of pro runners about this. And, you know, they talk about their 
fear and anxiety pre-race. And it's no different than, than me. It's no different than you or, or anybody else who's lining up on the line. And the cool thing about running is that when we line up on the starting line, you know, we're only 100 or 200 meters back from the best runners in the world. We're competing on the same course that they are. You never get to yeah. play basketball on the same, the same court as LeBron James. You can go play at your local rec center, but you will never know what it's like to walk into a stadium with tens of thousands of cheering fans. You will know what it's like to make a right on Hereford and a left on Boylston at the Boston Marathon and experience those incredible crowds going crazy for you. You're going to feel like a, an elite athlete. And so running is unique in that way. We can put ourselves in almost the same situation as these professional runners. Uh, and the cool thing is they're going through a lot of the same stuff that we are. Uh, the other way that I think we can reduce the anxiety of race days is, is just with good training. You know, I always like to say that racing is just a logical extension of training. You know, if you've done uh, hard workouts for the 5K, then your 5K goal time should be pretty achievable provided the training is there, right? And so if the training is there, if you've done the work and you've prepared appropriately, then, you know, the only anxiety you put on yourself is just performance. It's how fast am I going to go? Not necessarily, am I going to finish? Am, am I just going to have a really terrible race? And so that aspect to running really takes away some of the anxiety, just proper preparation. Let's do the training. You know, let's make sure that we're not making a lot of training mistakes over the course of the season. And, and that's going to help you be a lot more confident on race day. Um, finally, I'll say, you know, I think one of the things that is more common today, and I'm dating myself a little bit here, than when I started running way back in the 90s, is, uh, you know, so many runners today are constantly listening to music or podcasts or checking their GPS watch and looking at all their stats and metrics. And they are just constantly distracted when they are out there running. And, and I think this is, this is almost hurting our ability to mentally grapple with the difficulty of running because we shouldn't always try to ignore it. I have a lot of runners who think, you know, if I'm running a fast workout on the track, I want some music so that I can zone out or that I can ignore the discomfort I'm experiencing. But if you never get to know that discomfort, if you never really truly understand how your body responds to that kind of suffering, then you're never going to master it. You're never going to conquer it. And on race day, it's going to be a much bigger source of anxiety because, you know, you simply weren't fully engaged with your training during the training cycle uh, to, to give you those mental tools. And so it's almost like, uh, you know, getting a vaccine, you know, it gives you some immunity and it builds it just, just a, with a little bit of exposure, it makes you immune to the full virus. And this is very similar. You know, you're going to be doing long runs and hard workouts and you're just getting a little bit of exposure to that suffering. So that on race day, when it's even more difficult, you're going to be that much more inoculated to the anxiety that that suffering causes you. So I think if we can just, you know, uh, of course, I'm not saying don't listen to podcasts, listen to this podcast, every episode, <laughs> rate and review yeah, yeah. it. It's amazing. I know another great podcast called the strength running podcast. Listen to these. These are great podcasts, but I might, I might say, don't take us with you uh, when you're doing a long run. Let's not listen to music or podcasts when you're doing a faster workout. So I'm actually saying let's make those hard days even harder by not allowing ourselves to get distracted. 
And, you know, particularly for runners, if you're training for a half marathon or a marathon and you're constantly listening to music or podcasts when you're out there doing your long runs, you know, a lot of these races don't allow you to wear headphones. And so if you then have to do something new on race day, which is not listen to anything, and that, of course, breaks the cardinal rule of not doing anything new on race day, that is going to be an enormous mental obstacle for you to overcome on race day. So uh, I think it is beneficial for all runners to, you know, leave their music at home on the hard days and really come to grips with the discomfort, even the boredom of doing a two or two and a half hour long run. You know, that's, that's just part of running. And that's going to make you a more mentally tough athlete that uh, I think is only going to be a faster athlete as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that happens at my first race, my first 5k, my, um, my phone died, my phone died right at the finish or at the starting line. Um, for some reason. And so whatever music I was like, well, guess I'm running this without <laughs> my playlist. And it was hard, but I, I like that. Like you just, okay, cool. I'm going to become more aware of my breathing. Um, what's going on around me, the things on the ground, noticing these things. Um, it was different. Yeah, and that's, all those inputs are what really make up perceived effort and all, and, and really what you're capable of on race day is dependent upon your perceived effort. So if you're not good at overriding your body's, you kind of like the voice inside your head that says, this pace is too fast. You have to slow down. Uh, this is a threat to homeostasis. What are you doing? Like, I can't, I can't wait to sit down in a recliner and eat a bagel. If you always listen to that voice, then, you know, you're, you're not, you're simply not going to run as fast. And uh, you have to be able to know how to speak to that, you know, negative side of yourself on race day. Cause everyone is going to hear those little voices telling them to slow down or second guessing their pacing approach or, or telling them that, no, you don't have any more to give, but you absolutely do. You absolutely have more to give in any, in any race kind of a situation like that. And so, um, you know, not, not engaging with that voice during hard training because you're being distracted is, is just not the way to do it. In fact, I remember, uh, you know, in college, we weren't even allowed to race with a watch on you know, our, our coach came around and just collected all of our watches. He's like, why do you care what the time is or, or what your watch says? You are competing, which, which means by definition, racing other runners. So, you know, I think a lot of runners talk about, oh, I, I race myself and all that. And that's fine. But, you know, let's remember that races are really competitions. And if we're not uh, engaged with ourselves and, and the inputs that our body is giving us, we're just not going to race as fast. Mm-hmm. So get us into your head and kind of that inner chatter. So you have these voices coming up, like slow down, this is too hard, blah, blah, blah. Like what's going on through your head and how are you talking yourself out of this to keep yourself going? (laughs) It was funny. I was just talking to one of my clients yesterday about how I'm such a fan of lying to myself during a race. Uh, I remember when I ran my fastest marathon, the first 20 miles or so, I very much was telling myself to relax, just relax. This is an easy run. It's a fun run. Yeah, you're going a little faster than you normally do, but that's not that hard. You know, marathon pace is only hard because you're doing it for such a long time, right? And so for the first 10, 15, 20 miles, it's not that challenging. Um, and, I, I, you know, I lied to myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm so relaxed right now. I feel great. You know, I'm, I'm just patiently executing the pace that I want to run. I'm just gradually reeling in the runners in front of me. Uh, and then, you know, you hit mile 20 or 21 and the real racing begins. 
Um, but for me, I'm, I'm very much, um, I, you know, I honestly, it, looking back over my racing career, I was very much a head case. You know, I've, I have all kinds of negative thoughts and I've had races where, uh, I didn't run well just because of like mentally I was having, uh, not necessarily an anxiety attack, but you know, you just get so nervous and you go through all the different negative scenarios of what might happen. Um, and so it's kind of hard to talk about what goes through your head because a lot of it is just so incredibly negative. Uh, and, and I think no matter what, it's, uh, it's a universal, it doesn't matter what your finish time is. You're, you're going through a lot of the same things. Um, but I think when I look back on the races where I did the best and I not necessarily ran the fastest, but I was most proud of the performance because I gave it my all. It's when I just didn't care how much it hurt and I wanted to see how fast I could run. And it was, I was almost a little angry. Like I just, I'm going to hammer the last lap of this 5k on the track and, and you just, you just go after it and you don't care how much it hurts. And it almost like you're looking at the race from above. You're not really experiencing it. You're, you're looking at someone, you're like, obviously this person can run faster, go run faster. And then you just kind of do, and you, and you just keep pushing and pushing. Uh, cause you know, at the end of the day, and, and this is something I've had to really remind myself of often is that it's just running. It's just running. Yes. It hurts a little bit. Yes. You feel in the moment, like it's the worst kind of imaginable pain and you want to quit, but look, it's going to be over in what an hour, maybe if you're running a marathon, a half an hour and a half and a half marathon or in a shorter race, it might only be a couple minutes, you know? Uh, and so if you can suffer for just a couple minutes out of the day, you're going to have a performance that you will remember and cherish for the rest of your life. So for me, looking back on those races, it's, it's, it's a no brainer to just give it your all and, and to try to, uh, muzzle that voice in your head who's trying to tell you to slow down because that is not a voice in your best interests. <laughs> Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That voice, it, it tries to protect us, but you're like, cool, I can do these hard things. I want to do something that's a little outside of my comfort zone, something new and different. Um, what races do you have up coming up this year? Uh, 2018. So far, I just have one. I just have a 12 mile trail race out in the mountains here in Colorado. So I think there's about 3,500 feet of elevation gain and loss. So it's a, it's a really crazy course, but it's beautiful. I think if, uh, one of the reasons why I am continuing to run at the level that I'm running now that I'm a little bit older is because I like to do cool things as a runner. You know, I want to go in the mountains and just be able to go run 10 miles. And it's going to take a long time because it's, you know, you're up at nine or 10,000 feet and it's just a lot slower up there. Um, but it's, it's so beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you're on this incredible single track with views of snow-capped peaks. Uh, you know, I didn't get that growing up training in Massachusetts. So now I want to take advantage of it. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, going to do that trail race here in early June. And then I think um, I, I am thinking about doing a 10K obstacle course race in September, just to switch things up and have a little fun. It's, uh, it's a warrior dash. I've only done one warrior dash before in 2012, and I did all right at it. So hoping to uh, go back there and see what I can do. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Cool. So if someone were to hire you as a coach, what does that look like? Um, I think sometimes people don't really know, like online coaching, like what's that? Like he's not going to be right next to me. So how does that work? 
Sure. So there's a couple different coaching services and programs that I have at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. But um, the one-on-one coaching program that I have is, is very much, you know, we are in almost constant communication about your running and your training and your goals. Uh, you know, the, the, the basic structure is that you'll always have a custom built training plan for whatever goal you might have. So uh, this is a plan that I write usually in six weeks, six week blocks of time so that, uh, you know, it's not too long, but it's also not too short. And, you know, I update it whenever it needs to be updated. So if you get sick, if you go on vacation, if you miss a run, you know, whatever might happen in your life, you know, we're always readjusting so that the training really fits your life. Um, And, you know, like I was talking earlier, one of the biggest things that I do is, is helping runners with the strategy behind their race selection and the selection of their tune-up races before their, their goal race. And, and that's really where runners can thrive is in structuring things the proper way. And so I think some of the, some of that strategy is, is just very foreign or alien to, to a recreational runner who doesn't have experience with it. Uh, but a coach can really help you, uh, schedule your training cycle appropriately and then periodize it. So you're not running workouts, you know, four months out from your goal race that are way too hard and challenging. You can actually be doing the appropriate workouts at the appropriate time. And that actually makes you feel so much better throughout the training cycle. You know, it really risks, uh, it eliminates the risk of burnout and overtraining. uh, And it helps the athletes actually uh, perform better on race day. Uh, so in addition to that, uh, you know, they get in touch with me once a week on their training and they tell me what they were able to do. And I kind of compare it to their training plan. And we talk about what went well, what didn't go well, what they can improve upon. Uh, and then, you know, any other issues that come up, I kind of like to tell my clients that I'm their, you know, personal running consultant. If you have any questions at all, not just about your training, but about uh, running itself, then I'm always available for you. And so we'll talk a lot via email. Sometimes we'll get on the phone or we'll do Skype or FaceTime or something like that. Um, and it's very much uh, a relationship where I'm there to support your running and to get you to accomplish whatever goal you might have. And I think one of the things that surprised me most about becoming a coach is the fact that so many runners think coaching is for, you know, the best of the best, you know, Oh, I'm not a two thirty marathon or why would I need a coach? But if you think about it, whenever you want to learn a new skill, if you ever want to do something new, you almost always go get professional guidance, right? If you wanted to become a potter, you would go take a ceramics class. You wouldn't just try it on your own and just try to figure it out. Uh, or if, you know, your, your son or daughter was like, I want to play soccer. What would the first thing you do, do is, well, are there any leagues around? Is there a team that they can join? Is there, you know, uh, uh, some sort of organized, uh, you know, league that they can join and play? So we're always, I think for other people saying, yeah, go get some extra help, go take a class, go consult an expert. But with our own running, we never do that. And it's weird because, you know, when you're just starting out or when you set kind of a big goal, whether it's qualifying for Boston, setting a, you know, a sub three or four hour marathon, those are the times when you need that guidance and you need that support and accountability. So for me, it's, it's a no brainer to get that. If you're really passionate about running, you want to improve and you want to do it the right way. Yeah. I will never not have a coach ever again. I will always have a coach because it's just like, even just like the head games that you play in your head about whatever it is you're trying to work on, like just having like a consultant, someone to like help you talk 
yourself out of those things that you're talking yourself into. So, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. That is absolutely huge. And, you know, it's also interesting that I've found most of the time I'm not the, you know, the hard charging coach who's telling you to run faster. I'm slamming my clipboard on the floor. Like there's none of that. In fact, most of the time I'm talking my runners off the ledge. I'm telling them that it's okay that they miss their workout. It's okay that, you know, their, their race didn't go exactly to plan. And so I try to kind of put a lot of perspective mm-hmm. on training and racing for my athletes because it's a long-term sport and you can't put so much emphasis on one race or one workout or even one week of training. So thinking long-term and thinking more uh, strategically about what we're doing, I think is one of the, the biggest benefits a coach can bring to an athlete's training. That's awesome. I love that long-term. So where can people find you? Where are you most active if they want to connect? Sure. I think the best spot is probably strengthrunning.com. That's my home base where I publish all of our blog posts and podcast episodes, the Strength Running Podcast. You'll find that right in the, the I think, the main header there. Um, but the podcast, too, is available on Spotify, Apple Music, um, Stitcher, I believe, if you have an Android device. So lots of different options for connecting with me. And then on social media, I'm Jason Fitz one on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much today. It was wonderful to speak with you. Oh, thank you. So glad to be here. Since I started posting pictures of my meals again on social media, I've gotten this comment a lot and it is, Jacqueline, you always seem to have like the perfect ingredients to just throw a meal together. Like how do you do that? And I'm like, okay, cool. I can teach you how. Because here's the thing is that years ago, especially when I first started learning how to eat healthy, I was very much, uh, I have to follow a recipe. I have to look on Pinterest, look something up or look something up in my Whole30 cookbook or my paleo paleo cookbook or whatever. And I'm going to buy those specific ingredients so that I can make this specific meal. And what happened was I would be spending like four hours on Sunday chopping, chopping vegetables, um, cooking like three different things. And like, it just, it wasn't sustainable. I was definitely one of those people that would say something like, I can only eat healthy if I meal prep for four hours on Sunday. I can only eat eat healthy if I meal plan, if I'm like super 110% prepared. And what happened was like, there's, that's not real life. Like that is very uh, workable. It's doable when you're like, cool, I'm going to stick to this perfect meal plan for 30 days. But like you have to live the rest of your life. So I realized, okay, cool. That's not going to work for me. And I started to approach food in a different way. So if you know what a capsule wardrobe is, a capsule wardrobe really kind of like makes everything a little bit simpler. Instead of having millions and millions of articles of clothing, you just have a few and you learn to mix and match things. I kind of did the same thing with food. Now all foods are allowed. There's nothing that's off limits when I do imperfect eating, which is just how I eat my philosophy philosophy for foods, nothing is off limits. But when I go to the grocery store, I'm looking for specific things. If something catches my eye, sure, I'm allowed to get it. But I'm thinking about things um, in different different baskets that I'm thinking of, like how I'm going to incorporate things into my meals so that I can experience a meal. It's adding health. I feel satisfied and I feel energized and I'm not in a food coma, right? And so the way I approach food is really this simple way. There's this thing called the paradox of choice. And so we think that having millions and millions of choices means that we have freedom, 
But what happens is we're paralyzed because there are so many choices where it's like, oh my gosh, I could have anything I want. Now I feel paralyzed because I don't, I don't know how to pick. There's so much to choose from. So what I do, I keep it simple and really learning to put meals together like this helps me eat healthy to add health to my life and not to add stress. So eating healthy is not the sole goal of my life, but rather eating healthy supports all the other things that I'm doing, like running, like having a business, like having a podcast, like going out and doing anything in life. Eating healthy supports my life and it is not my life. It is not my sole goal or purpose on this planet. So I want to give you the heads up. I just launched a new program. It's called Meal Prepping 101 for the Imperfect Life. Let me tell you a little bit about the course contents. Um, it's super simple. I want this to be something that you take and you apply right away. It's not something that you have to perfect. It is open when you purchase it. You have it for the, uh, a lifetime, but either, these are the course contents. How to write a grocery list and meal plan in 10 minutes or less. Breakfast, eat or not to eat, is intermittent fasting helping or hurting you? How to build a lunch that you actually enjoy and energizes your body? How to handle snacks or snacking? How to throw dinner together in 25 minutes or less? How to befriend and not slay your sugar dragon, really dealing with sweet tooth cravings after dinner. Uh, oh my gosh, I forgot my lunch at home. I have no food at work. What do I do? My um, work catered lunch, free food. Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. How to eat over the weekend and go to sleep on Sunday. Happy with your decisions. And then the last one, okay, cool. Now how do I do this consistently? How do I implement this um, as a lifestyle change, like actually doing this for my body and not against my body. So heads up, there are there is a link in the show notes for this meal prepping 101 for the imperfect life. Already getting awesome feedback on these topics. Like, oh my gosh, they're so simple. Um, why didn't I think of that? Just like, yes, these are things that you can implement. And it is again, this is not meant for the person who is trying to just do a 30 day black and white plan. This is for a long term, like lifetime plan. Like, how are you going to eat? The rest of your life. 30 days are going to pass up. How are you going to eat on day 31, 32 when you go on vacation? All right, guys, make sure to check the link in the show notes. Take care.